Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 80% of the U.S. population lives in urban areas, which they define as densely populated urbanized areas of 50,000 or more people. Our cities are facing many challenges, which include poverty, environmental degradation, fiscal management, crowding, housing, traffic, public education, and crime. This week, Guest has a solution for improving the quality of life in cities and making them more resilient. Allison Sant is a partner and co-founder of the Studio for Urban Projects, an interdisciplinary design collaborative based in San Francisco that works at the intersection of architecture, urbanism, art, and social activism. She recently authored the book, From the Ground Up, Local Efforts to Create Resilient Cities. Allison, welcome to GreenSense. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Robert. It's a pleasure to be well, here. I've been a student of cities, uh, making trying to make them more sustainable for over 20 years. Uh, Cities are a great place to implement new sustainable initiatives. These large population centers provide an economy of scale to make uh, green initiatives economically feasible, such as green infrastructure, replacing pipes with plants, hyperlocal urban farms, cost-effective public transportation, net zero energy housing, and so on. So instead, we end up with major population centers filled with pollution, homelessness, high crime, with a very high cost of living. What went wrong in our big cities? <laughs> Gosh, what, a, what an important question. You know, I think, um, I think what went wrong is different in different places, probably. But, um, but, you know, I think that what's interesting now is that we have major opportunities to change that. You know, we're, we're seeing unprecedented levels of, of, um, of spending, federal spending coming from the Biden administration, you know, something like $80 billion a year going into climate solutions. And I think it's an incredible opportunity for us to think about how we not only address those mitigating and adapting to climate change, but also how we think about addressing inequities because cities are not working for so many people, um, as you as you point out. And I think we're, you know, we're left with the the history of and the and present tense very much of structural racism. And so much of, um, of what we're encountering today and what we will continue to encounter in the future is exasperating inequalities as you know, low-income communities and black and brown communities are affected more by climate change and, and disproportionately. So, you know, in the in from the ground up, I look at ways in which um, in which we can use both our, our focus on climate change and our interest in creating more equitable society in the United States to as an opportunity for making cities better, better for everyone. And, um, and, and that we go into the future, not just uh, not surviving it, but, but hopefully thriving in it. So what gave you the idea for the book? So um, as an urban designer, I've been working in San Francisco since the early 2000s. And the Studio for Urban Projects participated in tactical experiments and urban prototyping in San Francisco 
And so from, you know, from our streets to our shorelines, we were, we have been involved in rethinking the design of our cities. And through this work, it's been really powerful to me that small experiments like retaking a parking spot and making it into a park could be leveraged to change cities. You know, I, I, some probably many of your listeners are familiar with with parking day and um, and where where people would pay the parking meter and go out and, and turn a parking meter into a parking spot into a small scale park um, as long as the meter ran. And that's engendered other projects like parklets, which have sprung up during the pandemic and Times Square was closed to traffic. So, you know, I, I'm interested in how these small scale efforts and experimentation were shaping other places. So I researched cities across the country and talked with people that were making a difference in their own communities. Um, so one of the, uh, one great example. So, so you came up with the book from your work and talking with people? That was where the idea came from? Yeah, so so because we had been involved in so many small-scale experiments and prototypes here, I was interested in what was happening around the country and uh, and found many. I talked with over 90 people in, in writing the book and was came away very hopeful about so many of the community-led efforts in our in throughout the United States. Well, it's quite a book. It's well researched and it gives lots of examples. And so maybe we can get into it. Uh, the way I see it is that we have no perfect city, but your book highlights perfectly good programs that cities are implementing. And it's broken up into four chapters, reclaim the streets, tear up the concrete, plant the city, adapt the shoreline. So let's dig into some of the examples. Uh, reclaim the streets. Uh, we've covered the idea of complete streets on the show a couple of times. Uh, which is approach uh, to designing streets that enable safe access for all people who need to use them, including pedestrians, bicyclists, motorists, and transit riders of all ages and abilities. So you have an example in there. Tell us about Minneapolis and how they make their streets safe for everyone. Yeah, so Minneapolis is an amazing biking city. It has, you know, uh, uh, separated bikeways going throughout many parts of it. And these were old like rail lines that were transformed into things like the Midtown Greenway. Um, but not, you know, that kind of infrastructure that that provides safety for cyclists doesn't exist everywhere across the city. And um, so I interviewed uh, two people, Alexis Penny and um, Will Lumpkins, who live in North Minneapolis. And they've been really at the forefront of looking at how to make an, a greenway through their neighborhood in North Minneapolis, which is a neighborhood with a majority of uh, residents of color and many people living um, below the poverty line. And so what was interesting is that at first, uh, and this was true of many of the case studies in the book, at first there was, you know, very well-intentioned projects to bring a greenway to North Minneapolis but it was really originated by the city and by the um, folks in the health department. And it wasn't until um, it could be held by and, and really promoted by the folks that live in that neighborhood that the Greenway gained traction. Um, so it actually failed at first and people fought to get it taken out of their neighborhood. But when, um, when a trusted source like Will and Alexis were there to to help um, focus people's attention on what a greenway could be, not just pick one of these options, A, B, or C, and they're all a, some version of a bikeway, but really what, what, can, what can the greenway offer? Can it offer local businesses more, you know, more opportunities? Can it offer a safe way for kids to get to school? 
Um, can it provide much of the infrastructure that was missing and the investment that was missing from that neighborhood also in terms of public transit, which can help make it possible to create greenways by removing parking on the street and things like that. So really, um, and I found, again, found this across the book that it's so important that communities are leading these efforts to make them effective and to really make them meet their needs. And as you said, uh, you know, everyone wants big projects, but good projects can start small and organically grow and, and change a neighborhood. And a big part of that is a sense of place. And you give an example of the importance of creating a sense of place. And you highlight your hometown, San Francisco, as an example. What are they doing right when it comes to developing that sense of place? Well, San Francisco is a unique city in that, um, as I described earlier, with examples like Parking Day and tactical urbanism, those sort of small scale approaches. Are I like really that tactical urbanism. <laughs> yes. And it's not it's not just my term. Um, an author named Mike Leiden um, uh, really coined that. And I think he put his finger on something that was happening, but uh, he helped to kind of codify it. And those experiments were happening a lot in San Francisco because people felt frustrated with local government not doing things rapidly enough. And so they started doing things like, like you know, paying for a parking spot and turning it into a park. Um, but those efforts grew over time. And, and what started as tactical approaches really became city sanctioned projects. So for example, we grew from, you know, um, 80 parklets, which are, you know, official, year-long permitted parks, um, taking over a parking spot, which feature, uh, you know, their little micro parks with seating and, you know, greenery and bike spots. We had maybe 80 before the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, we got 5,000 shared space applications. So it's been this explosion of how, and really an illustration, as you point out, of how things can start small, but they can rapidly grow. Uh, especially when you have things like policies in place and um, and and ideas for how to shape those. And, and San Francisco has been good at that. Um, they've had great leaders within the city planning department that have helped foster things that have born out of the design and arts community here. So embellish a little bit on, I'm not familiar with uh, parking spots becoming parks. How, how does that work? <laughs> Sounds interesting. Yeah. So, and you may have recognized them from the pandemic because a lot of the, you know, public eating spaces that were taken over in the street when the pandemic hit to keep businesses alive and restaurants alive, those were really using um, and building on the illustration, the, the, um, the parklet program that started here in San Francisco and spread throughout the country. They've been used in many cities to, to create public space and former parking spots. Um, and, and again, they're just small micro parks. They really can serve any need. They've been used by businesses like coffee shops, but they've also mm. been used by schools to create, you know, outdoor classrooms or galleries to create, you know, spaces for artwork or, um, you know, we uh, we went to a movie screening in a parklet here close by. So they've been used for for lots of different things. Interesting. And during well, the pandemic, they were they were they caught fire. So, well, uh, San Francisco has always been on the forefront of new innovation. So let's get to the next chapter: tear up the concrete. I mentioned in the introduction about green infrastructure. A lot of people may not be familiar with that, but you have an essay in the book by I may not pronounce this right, Mami Hara. Yeah, Mami Hara. Uh, she has uh, green infrastructure lessons from U.S. cities. 
And for those that aren't familiar with green infrastructure, uh, can you summarize the takeaways uh, uh, that are mentioned in this essay? Yeah, I think, um, well, Mommy speaks to it in her own way from her experiences because she started off in Philadelphia and then went to Seattle and has been a real leader in, in forming green infrastructure across the country. So her um, her way of approaching it is, you know, is very reflective of her experiences as a as a city leader. Um, in the chapters that illustrate, there's three cities that that really talk to that speak to green infrastructure. And, um, and what I found was a through line through all of them were um, were the, was the idea that really again that that people, neighbors, and community members really can lead that. And I think the most glaring example was really in New Orleans, where, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, um, a woman named Angela Chalk from the 7th Ward, she was the kind of the cornerstone of her neighborhood and, and ran a group called the Healthy Community Services. She was one of the first people to move back to her neighborhood. And she started directing resources um, through Waterwise Gulf South to invest in green infrastructure in her neighborhood. Um, and the first way she did it was she got she she helped turn turn out volunteers to um, to remake her own yard as a demonstration project with bioswales and ram barrels and native plants. And when the next storm hit and her place didn't flood, her neighbors wanted the same kinds of remedies in their own yards. And so really, you know, knowing her neighbors in her neighborhood, she was able to bring people together around how green infrastructure works and how it really complements the very complex network of levees and pumps and canals that run throughout New Orleans. Um, and now the Seventh Ward has entire blocks of demonstration um, projects, and it's part of a, a training program called the Waterwise Champions, where um, which really makes people in the neighborhoods that have been hit the hardest by flooding the experts in green infrastructure solutions. That's a really, really exciting project. And I've always been a big advocate of those using nature uh, to create really a sponge that really sucks up the water rather than conveying it in pipes and uh, taking it off off uh, site into different watersheds. So, yeah, I think that's uh, fantastic. So on GreenSense, we've always focused on the cost benefit of doing uh, sustainable initiatives. So in the chapter, Plant the City, what's the cost benefit of planting more trees in cities? What, why do it uh, beyond just the aesthetic reasons? Where's the cost benefit? Hmm. So, um, you know, what's interesting about uh, the idea of cost too is, is the concept of, you know, what are we not paying for, right? So, so ecosystem services are a big part of that. You know, we don't necessarily think about uh, wow, well, we should we should pay for the idea of a tree absorbing water or you know, absorbing pollution or providing habitat or sequestering carbon. But obviously, all of those things are really just left out of our economic system. They're a huge part of the way that trees perform. And I think a lot of cities that have made an effort to create urban, um, to expand their urban tree canopy have really seen the benefit from that because they've equated with they've said, oh, how much are we spending in healthcare because this neighborhood is polluted, or how much are we spending in green infrastructure because it's flooding, right? So, so those have, were the really interesting parts of of, of um, looking at, at urban forestry more broadly. And you know, in most cities, we're at about twenty seven percent urban tree canopy on average. But American Forest really recommends something like forty percent. And unfortunately, too. Um, you know, 
urban canopy is not shared equally. So if you look at the history of redlining maps, it almost completely overlaps with the his, with tree canopy maps today. Hmm. And that means that in cities like Baltimore, where, you know, in fifth, it, like it, in an affluent neighborhood, you might have 50% tree canopy cover, but in uh, redline neighborhoods, you could have as little as 6%, which means that on a hot day, there's a 6% difference between two neighborhoods in the same city. So, you know, as we continue to encounter um, heat, and rising temperatures in cities, trees are a really important way in helping us to, to manage heat and keep people safe. And something hard to quantify because it's not as straightforward as uh, calculating the cost of putting in a sewer line, <laughs> which is uh, is pretty pretty quantifiable. Well, let's get on to the last one, adapt the shoreline. Almost every city is built at or near a source of surface or groundwater. And tell us how New York City is a good example of adapting the shoreline by growing 1 billion oysters. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm an oyster lover, so I want to hear this one. <laughs> this is an exciting project. I know. Um, the Billion Oyster Project is actually building on to our to your last point about trees. Um, um, New York actually led a really ambitious project to plant a million trees. And they did the math behind, you know, figuring out the ecosystem services and made that economic sense from it. And the Billion Oyster Project was captivated by that idea. Like it really got people thinking and imagining what the city could be like. Um, you may know that, you know, New York Harbor used to be full of oysters. And, um, and so in many ways, this is recreating what already existed. Um, but um, Pete Milanowski and his um, colleagues are, have created an amazing project called the Billion Oyster Project where they're, and they're based on Governor's Island in, in New York Harbor. And they have, um, and, and there's a public school that, that they work with. So the curriculum of the school is really um, out, comes out of this interest in growing a billion oysters in New York Harbor. But they also have oyster reefs throughout um, New York Harbor. So I looked at one in particular in Soundview, where they had created a community oyster reef, where community members and local schools were helping to maintain oyster reefs, and they studied it and found that because of um, a remnant oyster population and its connection between the, the newly imported oysters, that they actually were getting great results. And so that oyster reef has continued to grow. And even while I was writing the book, they were finding more and more oysters when they, um, when they reconstructed the, what was formerly called the Tappan Zee Bridge and turned into the that Governor Cuomo Bridge. I can't remember what, what the new name of it is, but the, um, when they were when they were doing um, the construction, they found uh, also a remnant population of oysters. And, and as I was finishing the last chapters of the book, I had scientists that were studying oysters there sending me pictures of amazing recruitment on these oyster reefs. So it's very exciting what's going on in New York Harbor. And, and oyster reefs are part of a larger set of solutions, nature-based solutions for adapting our shorelines. And they include wetlands restoration, all kinds of things that we can do um, by by looking at how um, how biodiversity can also be a big part of adapting to climate change in cities. Well, in my experience uh, working with mayors around the country on brownfield redevelopment and sustainability, I found that the budget process and the building codes uh, to be the two biggest impediments when it comes to implementing sustainable initiatives. In your opinion, you talk in the book about you know how fast the climate's changing and that we have to move quickly. What are you seeing as the biggest impediments to making cities more resilient? I think that 
actually, there's a lot of really positive direction in terms of people wanting solutions like this. I think people are concerned about climate change, you know, very broadly. I think people are concerned about climate change. And I think they they reasonably see cities as the place to act as, you know, as you pointed out that, you know, cities are responsible for 75% of global carbon emissions and they happen to be where we live. So these kinds of solutions are really important in people's lives. And I think even in something like transportation, where we think, oh, people will never get out of their cars, right? We have to remember that um, that we actually have a long history in this country of people not driving, right? Of sharing our streets. We used to, you know, over a hundred years ago, we had streets where people walked and bike and took public transit, and we had all of those options. I think that right now, what we need to do is remember that we need to create options for people again. So that they're so that especially people that want to get around without a private automobile can do that. And that's taking the that's that means that we need to invest in those kinds of solutions that make things like transportation available to everyone. Well, your book is a in-depth, it's well-researched work that highlights many success stories. Um, so I'll do a hypothetical if all your successful programs featured in your book were implemented by more cities, how would that cure pollution? crime, homelessness, and reduce the high cost of living in cities. Because it, when I go around the country, not our, our cities aren't great places. There's lots of issues there. Yeah, so right. uh, in closing, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, obviously you're pointing to a huge, huge problem and systemic problem. And I think that that is the right focus. How do we, how do we use our efforts around climate change to really look at the systemic and underlying problems that face our country. Um, yes, green infrastructure and transportation and adapting our shorelines and even planting trees are all part of that solution. But um, it's really important for us to create equity, more equitable cities. And part of the ways to do that are to create avenues so that people have access to um, transportation, which affords access to education and jobs and the resources of the city. We need to create jobs for people that don't currently have them and people that have been formerly incarcerated so that they can get onto a different road ahead to building a different life. And I think that when we can embrace those ideas that these are systemic problems, we can, we can with the opportunities that we have ahead, we can face them with systemic solutions. Then all of these pieces can be part of looking at that. Not one single piece of it will solve it all, but I think together we can we can find a solution. Yes, uh, I think that's uh, part of the answer. I also see, uh, I, I know in our work in developing contaminated properties around the country, one of the uh, unintended consequences was that you took these blighted areas, you displaced people, and you created uh, high value in the area. And it's these expensive housing uh, issues in all these cities that have just made cities unaffordable for the masses. And I don't know what the answer is to that. Sustainable cities are great, but that's something we're going to have to dive into. Um, we're out of time. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you all day. This is something I've uh, really liked uh, uh, for a long time. I think you hit on some really great examples and uh, it's all got to start somewhere. So success uh, in in small doses around the country uh, shared by others. Uh, hopefully we'll we'll get more success. So congratulations on the book. It was named one of the best of 22. It's an informative and thought-provoking read. And uh, thank you for joining us on Green Sense Show. Thank you so much for having me. 
That's Allison Son, author of From the Ground Up, Local Efforts to Create Resilient Cities. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM Chicago. And visit the GreenSenseShow.com website to learn more about sponsorship. Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit CEATECHN.com to learn more.